Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey, hey there from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we're going to shake things up a little bit. (laughs) That's right. There's been a lot of national political news this week. So before we bring you our guest, Oakland attorney and progressive powerhouse Angela Glover Blackwell, we're going to dig into perhaps the biggest news yet in the Democratic primary. Kamala Harris is out. Yep, she sure is, Marisa. The California senator threw in the towel on Tuesday saying she just didn't have the campaign cash to continue. Kind of hard to dispute that. It was, you know, kind of an abrupt end to a campaign that started in Oakland last January. 20,000 people turned out. A whole lot of promise and expectation there. But as we're about to hear, it wasn't a total surprise that things came to an end this week. That's true. You know, we've been hearing whispers of these problems for a week. And uh, first, they came up in Politico, where our first guest, Chris Catalago, broke a story about mayhem in the Harris campaign in mid-November. Chris joins us from D.C. in the Politico offices. Welcome to The Breakdown. Hey, Chris. Hey, good to be with you guys. So, um, and we should say, full disclosure, we all know Chris from his days reporting in California. Sacramento B. Yeah, good to see a familiar face on the campaign trail. Um Let's get into this, though. Like, you've been on the trail with Harris for months. And as we said, you kind of broke the first story about a lot of the problems within the campaign structure itself. And most campaigns know when process story starts, it's not a good sign. Um, I I don't know. When did you first start hearing whispers of some of these challenges? So before we did some of the stories that kind of came as a result of the layoffs that happened in her campaign, Um, There were a few, as you would call them, uh, process stories um, about sort of the staff and the structure um, that were coming out of the campaign um, around September. And they had to do with uh, folks not being happy about um, the leadership and needing sort of uh, someone in a more um, a role of responsibility. And part of it had to do with uh, the fact that they were just having a lot of trouble with things that seemed pretty basic, like dealing with her schedule. What state was she going to be in? What event was she going to uh, RSVP and which one was she not? And uh, what uh, TV hits was she going to do? What interviews? And so, you know, all these things sound very basic, but when it takes a long time to get those things nailed down and it takes a long time for staff and various departments to get time with her and get answers, uh, people get really frustrated. And I think that was sort of the start of 
um, of the staff unrest, and it just kind of snowballed from there. And Chris, there were a lot of whispers uh, for a while now about some of the problems created by having the candidate's sister, Maya, uh, be the campaign chair and some of the conflicts she had with Juan Rodriguez, who was, uh, you know, with the local uh, firm that was running the campaign, but hadn't local really... Local to San Francisco, Local San Francisco, say. although they're also in L.A., but they, they didn't have a lot of national experience. So, like, how much of the ultimate problem, the demise, do you think was that kind of stuff versus the candidate? Candidate herself and the message. Not that you can entirely, you know, detach those <laughs> right. two from each other. <laughs> or the fundraising. Yeah, and you hear from people within the campaign, right, who have a feeling that uh, it's one or the other, um, or they feel like it's more one than it is the other. Um, what I would say about the structure, and of course you guys know this, and putting uh, Maya as the uh, her sister as the campaign chair is, um, you know, that structure with uh, with the consulting firm um, and and Maya and Juan as campaign manager was something that, if not entirely designed by Kamala Harris herself, was at least kind of allowed to um, be organized in that way, right? So whether it was her kind of errors on the trail or not staying on message or the organization, it was still an organization that she uh, she built. Well, the, I mean, the buck um, stops with so, her. Yeah, she's the candidate. Yeah. So, yeah, the buck stops with her. And, and, and so I think a lot of the problems that manifested in the campaign, uh, like I said, sort of getting answers on things had to do with, well, if someone needed an answer, were they going to go to Maya or were they going to go to Juan? And so that's where that's kind of the, the, the difficult thing to figure out is who really had an ultimate say, who really had her ear to get approval on things. And I think that's where um, the bottlenecks kind of started. In the end, it was resources, lack of resources, Chris, uh, that uh, she just didn't have the money to go forward. And to what extent do you think that was just because of some of these rumors and the lack of faith in the structure of the campaign versus people just saying, you know what, she doesn't have a path to victory. I'm going to put my chips on, you know, Buttigieg or Biden or some, somebody else. A lot of it had to do with a buildup of a campaign playing and five or more states with, you know, a lot of staff on the ground, a lot of people being uh, brought into headquarters, you know, in that second quarter into that third quarter of the year. Um, Obviously, we know fundraising is done quarterly. And uh, at the same time, having her own fundraising, you know, besides the big spike she got around the uh, debate with uh, with Joe Biden, that first debate in Miami, um, it, it was not easy for her to raise money. I mean, she raised almost $40 million, but it was not – it certainly slowed way down as we got into the, uh, uh, the end of the third quarter and into this quarter. And so I think when you have high overhead and you have uh, the money just slowing to a crawl and, and the money is basically big dollar in-person fundraisers and the online fundraising uh, program, the digital stuff. And so – um, it's kind of a combination of both. The, the, the end of this campaign was in large part about money. Of course, there's the issue of protecting her reputation, but you can say in that last debate in Atlanta and, and, and the way that she's kind of been on the trail over the last uh, month or so since the, the big speech she gave in, in Iowa at the, uh, at the Democratic fundraising dinner, um, that she's actually, you know, corrected for a lot of the early problems that she had. Um, so there's there's some irony there. Um, uh, if she had had, if the money were sort of flowing more and she had enough money to run ads um, in uh, in Iowa and put some of her 
um, herself on TV there, I, I don't think you'd be talking about the same thing. I, I still think they would be looking uh, – they might be a long shot by this right. point and looking for that top three finish, but, but she wouldn't have to drop out. I mean, she did qualify for the debate on the 19th in, in L.A. Yeah, I mean, I heard – basically from people close to the campaign that they looked at the books last weekend and were like, we can't, you know, we can't make payroll in January if we keep going. I mean, it almost feels in some ways like the campaign was being was like overly ambitious, like you're saying, in, in the spending. Um, but we want to get talk about something. Well, a couple other things. One is like sort of just her. And I think, you know, some of the criticism of her campaign beyond this nuts and bolts stuff has been who is she as a candidate? Like, is she more progressive? Is she more liberal? Is she staking out clear enough ground? Um, but we've also seen some pushback in recent days from, uh, you know, folks who supported who who are critical of people like us and you, Chris. Um, and we heard uh, Julian Castro, another candidate who is still in the race, talk about this to CBS this week. In the last few days to see articles out of Politico, the New York Times, Washington Post, that it basically trashed her campaign and focused on just one small part of it. Um, and I think held her to a different standard, a double standard, has been grossly unfair and unfortunate. So, Chris, let's let you respond to that, since I think you might have been talking about your Politico story. I mean, do you think that Harris has been held to a different standard than other candidates because of her race and her gender? I think the string of stories that Julian Castro is talking about seem to all kind of start late, later in the fall, right? And so what he really is getting at is whether Kamala Harris had a sort of fair shot from the media um, from the beginning of the campaign. And part of it is, you know, she had what was essentially kind of, as you guys noted, a front-runner type rollout of her campaign with more than 20,000 people in Oakland. And then she had this, you know, real front-runner moment when a lot of people started to really pay attention to the campaign in the first debate with Joe Biden. And so although she in reality probably was not a front runner when it comes to name identification, when it comes to the amount of money she was able to raise, when it comes to how long she'd been on the scene, she was vetted like a front runner. And a lot of people ran with and went back and reinvestigated a lot of the stories that you guys um, have known about for a long time, whether it was the crime lab in San Francisco or whether it was her record as uh, as DA and AG. And so, you know, those were things that obviously they uh, anticipated in, in large part. But um, I think a, a lot of her record and a lot of the um, you know, sort of investigative or tougher stories on it were pretty uh, persistent throughout the campaign. Well, and I would say also she had a fair fair amount of positive press coverage as yeah. well, some really glowing sure. articles. And, and if you talk about piling on, I mean, Joe Biden has had a whole spate <laughs> yeah. of negative and yeah. you could say, well, he deserves it, you know, but, you know. I guess, I, guess yeah. I wonder, like having watched her for so long, if it's almost the opposite problem, which is that her race and gender have made her more cautious and that that makes you in this moment, in this Democratic Party with a field this crowded, if you don't have a clear message that you're staking out, if you're flip flopping on health care and on other important important issues, then like, how do you carve out a space for yourself? Well, and I think it's, it's, you know, a state like Iowa, New Hampshire, there's a lot of criticism there because of the lack of diversity among the voters, but it's hard to hide. You can't hide your flaws as easily as you can, say, in a state like California, where you can put a really flashy, great ad on that goes viral, you know, mm -hmm. and, and you can mask some of those shortcomings. But Chris, you know, like one of the things we've heard from talking to people around here is that they were beginning to worry about 2022 when she's up for re-election. Uh, they didn't want to go into debt, you know, from 
from this campaign to handicap them in 22. What do you think uh, in terms of her vulnerability here in California going forward? Is she going to get a serious primary challenge, for example, if she's not, say, Attorney General of the United States? I mean, I guess I just wonder who would really do it. Um, It's possible you see kind of progressive national strategists out there sort of hoping that someone will jump in now. Part of that is if she had hung around longer, and of course you guys know the deadline with the California, getting off the or California ballot, if she had stayed longer and, 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 and really sort of taken a huge hit in, in Iowa, stuck around, you know, done even worse in, in New Hampshire and then waited and tried to wait out until South Carolina, do you look, uh, significantly weakened as a candidate and really sort of invite a challenge in a Senate race. Now, I think, obviously, her prospects for um, for a cabinet position, you know, potentially uh, a look for VP or even something like the Supreme Court down the line all look better. I mean, the early, people really respect this early exit. You've heard a lot of people talk about how it was a smart decision on her part. Um, it, it Maybe it could have come a couple of weeks later after the next debate to see what happens. But I think you know, in her case, you, you carry so much overhead, we don't know the cost of staying in for a couple of weeks. I mean, it could be half a million or a million or more. And so, wow. so it could have just not wanted, you know, pushing her into into large amounts of debt that you then go have to raise um, a bunch more money for just to get in the black is, is not kind of looking out for her. So the people around her, we talked about some of the mistakes they've made and how the structure may not have worked, that they've been around her for a very long time. And and I think we're in a lot of ways also looking at protecting her reputation in California, her political future. Like you said, she's 55. Um, She's got time. Tom Steyer, (laughs) but, you know, Tom Steyer, it's funny. You guys know he passed on a governor's race. He passed on a a Senate race before that, but he's, he's running for president, right? And part of that is... Uh, California not having the highest appetite in the world for, you know, billionaire uh, political novices. And so I, I, I don't know whether he uh, fits the bill. To run. I, I think Kamala Harris's campaign team would have a lot of fun with Tom Steyer in a Senate race in California. Uh, yeah, if a rich white guy uh, goes after her. All right, Chris yeah. Catalago of Politico, uh, we are going to have to leave it there. We look forward to seeing more of your campaign reporting as things move forward without Kamala Harris in the race. Thanks so much. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, guys. All right, we're going to take a short break now, and when we return, we'll be joined by social justice warrior Angela Glover Blackwell. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we are delighted to welcome Angela Glover Blackwell to The Breakdown. She is the founder of PolicyLink, an Oakland-based group dedicated to helping disadvantaged Americans build stronger communities. Angela, thanks for coming in. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So we just came out of the break where, and before that, we had been talking about, um, unfortunately, our hometown uh, candidate, Kamala Harris, dropping out of the presidential race. And you know, we're now hearing that this could be an all-white debate stage in a couple weeks in L.A. Um, and I'm just curious, as somebody who's been such a leader in communities of color, kind of what you think her departure means for this race and the Democratic Party. Well, I think it's really unfortunate that she's out of the race. It was exciting in the beginning yeah. when you looked at that stage. And even though there were way too many people on the stage, you knew it had to dwindle. It was exciting to see so many people of color and so many women because that is the future of the nation. And the Democrats and the Republicans need to catch up with the future because we are rapidly becoming a nation in which the majority will be people of color by 2044. But the majority of one of the workforce will be of color by 2030. The majority of all children under 18 will be of color by the middle of next year. <laughs> so when we think about who we're developing policy for, who has to believe in democracy to really participate in it and make it vibrant, we have got to be able to reflect that in the people who we're putting forward to lead. What do you make of the fact that the top tier, the top four candidates are all white and uh, even people of color, African-American voters, Latino voters seem to be drawn to either Bernie Sanders or particularly Joe Biden. What do you make of that? What I make of it is that the media has not yet grasped the fact that we are changing as a nation and it is possible for a woman of color to be president of the United States. Even when Kamala's numbers were ahead of Mayor Pete's, it was he who got the cover of New York Magazine. Mm. When her numbers were ahead of Beto, it was he who got the cover of Vanity Fair. And when I watched the commentary at night talk about the top tier candidates, even when she was clearly in it, she was an afterthought, or she came late, or they didn't mention her at all. And so I really do think that the top-tier candidates are beginning to represent what the media has put forward. And I don't just mean familiarity. I mean this notion of who can win. And the media is shaping America's notions around who can win. And people are responding to that. Because no matter where you are politically, this is an important election. Well, I was going to say, uh, the issues that you care about uh, and that you think about and work on, what do you think is at stake? I think everything is at stake. I actually am very worried about the nation. I have spent my entire career 
really pulling at the heartstrings of leaders, both political leaders and civic leaders and others, about the moral obligation that this country had to make sure that it was creating paths for everybody to participate. That moral obligation, while it's still there, has become an economic and a national imperative. If we don't invest in building the wealth of people who are being left behind, making sure that we are a healthy nation that can bring everything we have to the workplace and creativity and family and community, if we don't figure out how to fix this economy that is leaving most of the nation behind, most of them aren't feeling it yet, but they're being left behind, and everybody's going to start feeling it soon except for those few at the top, the future of the nation is not bright. And these aren't things that we had solved before the current president came in the White House. These were problems before. We were starting to lift them up and define them. Now we're taking huge steps backwards. And if we continue to do that into the coming decade, it's going to take a long time to recover. It's time for bold ideas now, not a decade from now. I want to ask you about that. I know that um, in addition to being the founder of PolicyLink, which really works with disadvantaged communities around the nation to help sort of build up uh, their infrastructure and, and, and communities um, really in those communities. You also have this new podcast called A Radical Imagination. And we've seen some pretty, I think some people would say radical ideas on the Democratic side this year. Medicare for all, um, you know, free college, eliminating college debt. Do you see those ideas as radical? And how do you try to talk to people about making leaps that maybe make them uncomfortable? Yeah. I think it's time for it. It's time for radical imagination, because what I have been describing in terms of the demographics of the future will require this nation to create an inclusive society, the likes of which it has never seen. And we're not going to get there with incremental changes to existing policy. But that we makes people think, scared. Well, why, why does it make people scared? That's what I'm trying to do with the podcast, is introduce ideas that people are afraid of and have them listen to them with their shoulders down and their minds open. Things like open borders. I know that is a scary concept, but we do have a problem in terms of immigration policy. And rather than just calling for stop separating children from their families, which of course we should do, we need to have a more expanded discussion about what is our policy really trying to accomplish. Another one that we talk about is guaranteed income, mm -hmm. an outlandish thought for a lot of people, but it's starting to be experimented with in Mississippi and right here in Stockton, California, and people in Silicon Valley, I think, worried about what they're leaving in the wake of the transformation that they might make in the economy, beginning to think about what can they do to balance it. But it is an idea that is growing, and we need to talk about that. Federal job guarantee. Everybody who wants a job should have a job. Sounds scary in a nation where people compete for crumbs in terms of jobs. We did it before. We did it during the Great Depression. The idea of people who want to work being able to work is something that we ought to be able to embrace. And so what we try to do on the podcast is help people to understand that a fully inclusive society will be good not just for those who've been left out. It'll be good for everyone. And we have to open our minds to new ways of organizing ourselves to build that society. You grew up, I think, in St. Louis. I did. And, and I'm just wondering, what did you experience as a young girl uh, that uh, influenced the way you think about these things today? 
I grew up in a segregated St. Louis, Missouri in the 1950s and the early 60s. Uh, I remember that my family was the second black family to move onto our block, the first having moved in the day before. <laughs> and almost all the white people were gone within two years. So I always knew wow. we came from a powerful family. We were able to empty that block out. <laughs> but as I looked at what happened to what was a lovely neighborhood when we moved into it with grocery stores and drug stores and swimming pools and parks, those things began to fade and leave. As the white people left, the investment also left. By the time I was in college coming home, my parents were going deep into the suburbs just to find a grocery store. So when I think about the way that policy and strategy and prejudice and racism has disadvantaged people, I do know it firsthand. But I also grew up in a family of activists. Activists. My father was not just the president of the Block Association, but he was active in the NAACP. He actually started the first teachers union in St. Louis. And he and his friends, my family, all of the talk around the dining room table from the time I was a little girl crawling under the table till I was old enough to sit at the table was always about how to make the nation better and more inclusive. Well, and you have really dedicated your life to that. I know you went to Howard University and then came out to go to law school here at Cal in the Bay Area. Um, you've been in Oakland, I think, for four decades in the same house. At least. Is that, yeah. yeah. Raised your children there. Mm-hmm. Um, your son is the head of the San Francisco Foundation. I mean, you guys have been really involved in the community here. What have you seen happen to Oakland and to your city? Like, how have you... Because I, I read something that you... An interview with you right after Trump was elected, and you had some hope that some of what he might do in red states would help everyone. Um, and I'm just curious if you feel like any of that, you know, what, what you're seeing on the that ground. Someplace, sometime. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think. It was early. You're trying to be optimistic. Thinking, as you were saying it, I'm thinking, what would I have been thinking? <laughs> I guess what I was thinking is if he really did respond mm-hmm. to the problems of poor white people in America, we know those strategies would help many people. But that hasn't happened, sadly. Oakland is a wonderful place. I love it. When we first moved to Oakland, we weren't coming to Oakland. We were coming to San Francisco. We wanted to move to the Bay Area, but my husband got a job in Oakland, and we settled there. And at first, we treated it like a bedroom community to San Francisco, Mm -hmm. but eventually we got into it. Great place. And then it started to lose many things. It lost its retail uh, establishments. It lost a lot. And by that time, I was engaged in trying to make it better. And now I see it better in that front, and it breaks my heart to see the low-income people of color and striving middle-class people of color, particularly black people, getting pushed out of Oakland, not able to stay there and enjoy now that it has restaurants and nightlife Mm -hmm. and excitement and buzz. And so Oakland is really indicative of cities across America especially in California, New York, Boston, experiencing this comeback of cities, throwing away the people who have made it vibrant and attractive because we have a housing crisis. And that housing crisis actually represents a market failure. We have a market failure, a housing crisis, and Oakland is suffering from it. It's sort of the reverse of what you were describing happened in St. Louis, Mm -hmm. uh, where African-Americans moved in, the whites moved out. How do you, when you think about that issue of gentrification, you know, how do you 
avoid it, you know, because all communities want to be safer. They want to have those amenities. They want to have the stores and the other things. But as that begins to happen, it becomes, you know, property values go up. It becomes more attractive to more people. So how do you interrupt that cycle? Can you solve that for us right now? (laughs) (laughs) It can be solved, but it's going to take multiple strategies and a lot of coordination. The first thing that we have to do, which is probably the last thing that we will do, but the most important thing to do is to get rid of our racial prejudice that has too many people thinking that when a few black people move in that their property values are going to go down. We have got to stop having the only time we have really integrated communities is when they're transitioning. Either they're transitioning from being white to being of color or they're transitioning from being of color to being white. we got to stop that. But the next thing we have to do is understand that we have to invest invest in affordable housing. And that is, we're not going to build our way out of this problem. We have to keep rents low. We have to create inventive kinds of ownership, community land trusts and other things. When we start to revitalize a community, we have to assume success. Very often when we start revitalizing neglected communities, we never assume we're going to be successful. So we don't do the one thing we could do early on, which is bake in affordability. We need to bake in affordability when we start so that as things improve, they will stay. We need a massive infusion of resources to be able to counter this focus on letting the market drive everything. The market is not going to build deeply affordable housing. We just need to understand that. We need government to do that. And then we need to supplement the market to be able to have affordable housing. And we have to make a commitment to understanding that cities are going to lose this vibrancy if we can't figure out how to hold people in. So we only have about a minute left. I'm curious, given everything we've talked about, and we could go longer, um, you know, from your life going from St. Louis to Oakland, now seeing President Trump in office for the last three years, are you optimistic? I am, actually. I get asked this almost on a daily basis. And I am optimistic because I have never seen the kind of transformative uh, solidarity that is emerging right now. People, whether they are identifying with gender or an issue or a racial or an ethnic group or whatever it might be, they are seeing that we are up against the same thing that it is an attitude of exclusion, of creating wealth at the top, of shrinking government, of not caring about people that's impacting everyone. And that's causing people to support each other's efforts, to join together and fight back. And the creativity that I'm talking about on radical imagination is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of people really investing in ideas. The democratic debates are actually showing us that. So while it feels like we're in a bad moment, I I am convinced that this is the last gasp of people being nostalgic for a time that never was while avoiding a future that is inevitable. And I believe that while it may be dangerous and loud and shrill, it is last. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. Angela Clever Blackwell, thank you for coming in. Thank you. Thank you and for, for ending on an optimistic note. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producers, Guy Marzarati. Our engineers are Rob Spade and Seal Muller. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, and Vinnie Tong. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. And you can always find all of the Political Breakdowns wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area, its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures, then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randadid Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. 